here. Uh, grab your Bibles, please, and turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll bring one to you. Book of Matthew. You get a Bible up there? Thank you. Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. And as you're turning there, I want you to think about how you find answers to your questions, okay? Just think about this. If you've got a question you don't know the answer, there's multiple ways to find that answer. You can always ask somebody who you think would maybe know that answer, somebody older than you, maybe somebody wiser than you, maybe somebody who's experienced in that field of question that you have. Back in the day, anybody remember the encyclopedias? We used to have the encyclopedia, big, we'd pull them out and find, try to find answers there, right? Today, what do we do? We Google. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, when we look, it may take us a while, but typically, through whatever method or means we have to find our answers, we typically find those answers. But there are some questions that are not easily answered. Now, I was thinking about this even just last night. Um, we were together for a family get-together. So there's a bunch of, uh, basically, Jenny's family. They have so many kids from, like, 20 down. I mean, there's, like, I don't know, 20 of them or something. Um, one for every age or two. But So we're all in a room, in a small room. And then, of course, March Madness is going on right now. So the basketball game's on. And it's at the end of a game, and the game's really tight, and everybody's sort of, you know, in and out, outside playing, down in the basement, playing in there, watching TV. And somebody said, well, why did they call timeout? So right away, family, people start chiming in. Well, why did they run Netflix? Well, why did they, why did they, why did they? And it was funny, because I'm sitting back watching, and we're just like, well, why did, you know, so everybody's starting to be sarcastic with each other. And then the course comes out, why are we saying why? And it's like... The questions were popping up left and right, almost to the point of sarcasm. But nobody had any answers. We were just asking the questions. And sometimes when we look, think around, there are some questions that never get answered, and it really bothers us. Why is there not an answer to this particular question? But let me ask you a question, and you may have the answer, you may not. I'm going to propose an answer in the sermon today to this question. Here's the question. What is your purpose in life? What is your purpose in life? So I want you to think that question, but personalize it. You ask yourself right now where you're sitting, God, what is my purpose in life? I want everybody to think that through. Don't raise your hands, but how many of you have a solid answer for that right now. Don't raise your hands. But do you have a solid answer for that question right now? It's like, I know exactly what my purpose in life is. Do you know what it is? I hope and pray by the end of the service, you might have a hint of what it is. You might have a little bit of relief in saying, this is my purpose. In, the, in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 21, verse 111, I want you to read how Jerusalem was awaiting a king. And on Palm Sunday, it just seems natural we should turn here, right? So let's read verse starting in verse 1. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethage of Mount Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Going to the village over there, he said, As soon as you enter, you'll see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them, 
bring them to me. If anyone asks what you're doing, just say, the Lord needs them. And he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill a prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming. He is humble. Riding on a donkey. Riding on a donkey's colt. Now the two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt. And he sat on it. Verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession. And all the people around him were shouting, Praise God, the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this? They asked as the crowds replied. It's Jesus, the prophet from the Nazareth in Galilee. The entire city's in an uproar because why? The king of kings is entering the city. He is riding in just as it was prophesied in the Old Testament. He comes in like this king, and they are shouting, Hosanna, as we sang this morning. Hosanna, we are singing, God save us. Praise the Lord, God save us. And that's what they were saying as he entered the city. Praise God. Hosanna, save us, King. That's what you would do if you were coming as a poor, poverty-stricken person who lived in a remote village, maybe, and there's the castle, and you have nothing, and the king has everything, and you are dying, and he is living, and you go to that king, you go to that castle, and you say, Hosanna, King, save us. That's us coming to God. That's the people looking at Jesus Christ. There's only one Savior, and they knew who it was. As he rode into Jerusalem then, that week, that day, and the following days, a lot of things took place to escalate to his arrest and his beatings and his crucifixion and the burial and the resurrection. We know that he cleared the temple of thieves and irreligious leaders. He taught with such authority that people were wowed. He repeatedly shared about God's kingdom. He said, many are called, but few are chosen. He talked about the kingdom of heaven is near. And many were wondering, what is this all about? But on this day when he rode in, which we call Palm Sunday, his popularity was growing. They wanted a king. And they saw him because here comes the one riding in on a donkey, on a colt. And it's just as it was prophesied. Everybody saw it. And they're thinking, this is what we've been hearing about when the scrolls are open and we read and we hear the prophets. This is it. And there was an excitement. The cheers, the applause, the recognition, right? And everybody's excited all except who? The Jewish leaders, right? The religious leaders. Because they knew they would be replaced by Jesus. And they don't want to be replaced They don't want to lose their power and their prestigious titles. Instead, they wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted to trap him. So if you look in your Bibles, we're in chapter 21 of Matthew. Go to the next chapter, chapter 22, and look at verse 15. Starting in verse 15 of chapter 22, it says, Then the Pharisees, these are religious leaders, they met together 
to plot how to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. Can you imagine that? They're at a little committee meeting. And they're sitting around. Okay, what can we do to have this Jesus arrested? What do you think? What, what, what can we get him to say that would really mess him up, that would really you know, cause an uproar? Reading on verse 16. They sent some of their disciples along with the supporters of Herod to meet with him. They said, Teacher, we know you're, how honest you are. Now listen to this, how they describe Jesus. We know how honest you are. You teach the way of God truthfully. You are impartial. You don't play favorites. I mean, they're talking Jesus up. They're like snakes, aren't they? Slithering in, trying to make Jesus feel good. And all the while, what are they doing? They're just trying to trap him. They're setting him up. Verse 17. Now tell us what you think about this. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Going on verse 18. But Jesus knew their evil motives. Incredible. He doesn't have to say it. He doesn't, he's like, I know what you guys are doing here. You hypocrites. He calls them out. Why are you trying to trap me? Why are you trying to trap me? If you were to read on a few other verses, fast forward to verse 23. That same day, Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, another religious group, religious leaders who say there's no resurrection from the dead. And they posed the question, why? Because they too wanted to trap Jesus. They wanted to catch him. Fast forward to verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. So now it's like, okay, let's gang up on him. Let's get our two religious groups that hate each other to come together to try to defeat Jesus. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with the question, Teacher, what's the most important commandment in the law of Moses? I love it because this is really what we base our our mission of our church on. This is the reply that Jesus gave. You must love the Lord your God. Love God. With all your heart, your soul, and your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love others. As they tried to trap him, Jesus gave him the greatest commandment ever. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 to 5, after Jesus had warned the religious leaders, Jesus taught more about the kingdom of God. So he continues to teach. He comes in riding in on his donkey. Here comes the king, and he teaches with authority. And he sets people straight in the midst of of what's going on. There's one who doesn't like it that is amidst Jesus' group, his disciples. There's one amongst the twelve who's been watching all this go down. And he had to love it when Jesus is coming in on the donkey and everybody's throwing their coats and their palm branches down and their Hosanna, praise God, here's the king. And he's walking beside, a little entourage, right? And he's like, yes, I'm walking with the king. This is awesome. But as the next days unfolded, as he tore apart the temple, as he taught with authority, as he took the religious leaders and just kept knocking them down, there's one who sat there and said, you know what? This isn't the way I thought it was going to be. This isn't about power. This isn't about a, a physical kingdom with a palace. This isn't about me getting the title to be the left-handed or the right-handed man. This is something different. And so that one disciple by the name of Judas decides, I'm out of here. He makes other arrangements. Matthew chapter 26. Let's turn there. 
In Matthew chapter 26, verses 14, it says this, And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, went to the leading priest, remember the ones who were trying to trap Jesus, and asked, How much will you pay me to portray Jesus to you? They gave him 30 pieces of silver. From that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. What motivated Judas? I don't know if you've ever done a Bible study on that. Maybe you've been in a group. Maybe you've sat around with people. Maybe you've heard another sermon. What do you think motivated Judas to do that? I mean, what would motivate you to take somebody you've known for three years deeply they become so close to you. You've walked with them. You've talked with them. You've been together three years plus, And it's the point where you have such a great bond. What would cause you to want to betray that relationship? What would cause us to want to walk away from something incredible? Did Judas want more power? Maybe he was jealous of the other disciples because Jesus was like, hey, Peter, James, John, come with me. Oh, hey, we're going to go up in this. Peter, James, John, why don't you come? We're going up this mountain. Hey, Peter, James, John, we're going to go in the garden of Gethsemane a little bit further than the others. Do you ever think Judas was sitting there going, how come those three? Why not me? Was that why? Did he long for respect? Maybe it was just less complex than all that. Maybe it's just greedy. Maybe he just wanted money. I mean, he was the treasurer with the disciples, and, and uh, he took care of the money, and maybe he thought, you know what? I like handling money. Matter of fact, I'd like more money. I'd like some for myself. And maybe I'm just tired of living in poverty. We sleep on the ground every night. We, we live out in the country. I don't have a home. This is not the kingdom I was thinking. I wouldn't mind having 30 pieces of silver and make a good deal, Right? So the night of this betrayal took place during the Passover. And if we all remember what the Passover is, it's time when the worshipers and travelers filled Jerusalem. You know, here comes the city. This is amazing. The city's being filled, and what's happening to Judas? He's empty. Ironic, right? Passover is a time when the Jewish people, they basically set aside seven days, seven days to celebrate how God rescued them from slavery in Egypt over 300 years earlier plus. Do you think about that? When's the last time we took seven days to celebrate how awesome God is? We have a hard time fitting in seven hours, let alone seven minutes. They took seven days. What if we just started today, and for the rest of this week, all we did was celebrate how awesome God is? Don't work. Don't travel anywhere. We just celebrate how awesome God is. What would our first response be? Oh, I can't take off work. Oh, I can't do that. I've got these responsibilities. Doesn't that be amazing? That's all we're going to do. That's what they were doing. See, there was nine plagues that God said, let my people go, let my people go. Going back to with Moses, right? Nine plagues come in. And they come in and come in and come in. But yet, the heart of Pharaoh is hardened, right? Not letting my people go. So God sends the tenth, the final, and the worst of all of them. And the angel of death is going to come across and take the firstborn of every family member. Every family member. No matter what background you were. So parents, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about your firstborn. And if you only have one child, then it's your only child. 
What if God came to you and said, I'm coming tonight. The angel of death is coming. I'm going to take them from you unless you trust me. If you trust me, this is what you need to do. Find a lamb, a perfect lamb. Give me your best. Take that lamb, sacrifice it. Drain the blood from that lamb into a bowl. And then take that bowl and take it and on your doorpost, take that blood on your doorpost. And if I see that on your doorpost, because you've trusted me because you're making that sacrifice, the angel of death will pass over your house and you will be fine. That's all they had to do. Some trusted God, some did not trust God. But for those who did trust God, the angel of death passed over them. And so they celebrate the Passover in relation to that moment, that evening, that time in history when they saw a way out, because there was a way out. God provided a way out with that sacrificial lamb, right? And the Jewish people celebrated and they remembered. Remember when God delivered us. Because it was after that moment that Pharaoh said, get out of here. Your God is mighty powerful. Get out of here. I don't want this anymore. So people celebrate the release, right? The freedom. But they also celebrate the fact that if you trust God, He will look over you. So during the Passover, the disciples, they gather in that upper room. So if you remember the story, they go into the upper room to break bread, to celebrate the Passover meal. It's like we did last week with communion. And as they're in that room, you sort of wonder, what were they discussing? Because we know from Scripture, what they were discussing earlier on the road as they traveled. Who do you think is the most powerful? Do you think I'm more? Do you think I'm the best disciple? They're sizing each other up. I think I'm greater. No, you're not. You're a fisherman. I'm a tax collector. And the conversations go on. Who's greater than who? Who's the most powerful? Power position. Who's going to sit next to Jesus? Can you imagine they're in a room and they can... Who's going to sit next to Jesus? Who's going to be on his left? Who's going to be on his right? Because that's a special position of authority. There's probably that kind of discussion going on, right? J. Wallace Hamilton tells a story about during the Depression. He said it was a story that began with a lot of optimism, but it ended in frustration. And the story goes like this, that during the Depression, men were hired to build a road. And this road that led out of the city, out into the country was going to be a road that would employ many. And so they did. They hired a lot of people and put them into work during the time of depression. They started building this road and there's a lot of hope. There's a lot of optimism. We are building a road and we're doing something that's going somewhere. And they were all excited until they discovered that the road had no destination. You see, the only reason that they were building that road was to give people a job to work, to put some money in their pocket. But the road was really leading nowhere. Suddenly the workers, their optimism dropped. Their hope dropped. Their work ethic dropped. Because here's what happened. That road had no destination. There was no purpose for it. And when you have no purpose, you have no hope. When you have no purpose, you have no joy in travel. When you have no purpose, there's no effort. There's no productivity. There's no sense of urgency, right? Roads to nowhere are hard to build. That's why if you even look just as a simple example right now with what's going on with uh, the NCAA basketball tournament. They call the road to the Final Four. 
See, that road leads to a destination, a purpose. They're going somewhere to the final four. Where are we going? We're going to the final four. They do commercials about guys getting in a car and driving together to go somewhere. They're not driving aimlessly. They're not driving without purpose. They're going somewhere. And when you see, when you live with no purpose, you don't have much encouragement to move you forward, right? If you get up in the morning and you don't have a job, or you don't have a place to be, or people to meet with, you sort of wake up, I have nothing to do today. How motivated are you? Probably not as motivated as if you, I'm, I get to meet somebody at 10 o'clock today for a meeting, or I'm going to go have lunch, or I'm going to go babysit this child, or my, my granddaughter, or my grandson. you just like, I can't wait for that moment, right? You have a purpose. But if you wake up, it's like, I have nothing to do today. It's a little hard to get motivated, right? Have you ever asked, and I'll ask this question again, what is the purpose of life? What is your purpose? Have you ever wondered, is there something more than what we have now? Or is it all about how I look? My purpose is to make sure I look good. My appearance, my image, right? Or maybe it's the job, the position, the title, the money. But what if that doesn't really go anywhere in life? What if all those things are dead-end streets? Because eventually you can't keep yourself looking good. You'll eventually be out of style. And, and trust me, as you get older, body shapes change, things change. Muscle, I'm not sure what that is anymore, okay? John Gordon, he's an author and speaker, said this. I'll read this to you. The truth is numbers and goals don't drive people. People with a purpose drive the numbers and achieve goals. Research clearly shows that true motivation is driven by meaning and purpose rather than extrinsic rewards, numbers, and goals. A study at West Point showed that those who had intrinsic goals, I want to serve my country, I want to make a difference, outperformed those with extrinsic goals. I want to rise in the ranks and become an officer because it's prestigious. He goes on to say this, Goals may motivate you in the short term, but they will not sustain you over time. This doesn't mean you shouldn't measure numbers or have goals. It's okay to have a goal if you want to achieve, but you identify a goal or outcome, you'll be more powerful and energized if you focus on your purpose. Your purpose will lead to a greater performance. Now, here's a gentleman who's not a pastor, but I know that he surrendered his life to Christ just a little about five, six years ago. And I'm not sure when he wrote that, but he understands that as a businessman, as a motivator, he understands, yeah, goals are great, but it's your purpose. See, the extrinsic is the things on the outside, the rewards. We talk about this with kids. You know, it's, for kids, it's like, well, I have one more certificate, one more trophy, one more this. You know, I'm going to get something. That's an extrinsic. But the intrinsic is what's going on in here. It's my purpose. Maybe I didn't receive a trophy or a certificate, but I helped somebody today. That's an intrinsic motivator. And that's sort of what John Gordon was saying, that there's purpose in life. And it's beyond what I'm going to get. But it's what's going on in here. On September 11th, you may have heard the story, maybe not, Lieutenant Colonel Brian Birdwell, U.S. Army Headquarters, he was in the Pentagon, if you remember when the plane crashed into the Pentagon. He just stepped into the hallway when the fireball from that hijacked plane hit him. After recovering from the initial shock, Birdwell realized he was on fire, literally, on fire. And he prayed. He said this, Jesus, I'm coming to see you. He said he remembered praying that. 
When doctors finally attended to him at the Washington Burn Center, he had second and third degree burns over 40% of his body. To save him, they performed several skin graft operations, and President George W. and First Lady uh, Laura Bush visited the, Was- the Washington Burn Center on September 13th, two days after this. Now, among those they visited was Lieutenant Colonel Birdwell. Laura Bush went into the room, into Brian's room, and spoke to him for about a minute, as if they were lifelong acquaintances. She then turned to Brian's wife, Melanie, and who had been at the hospital for two and a half days. She had not been home since the ordeal that took place. She was dirty. She was grimy. She still had blood-stained clothing on. And despite this, First Lady Laura Bush hugged her for what Melanie said it felt like an eternity, just as if she was one of my closest family members. Laura then told Brian and Mel that there was somebody there to see him. And at that time, the president walked into the room where he was at. And standing by Brian's bedside, the president told Colonel Birdwell that he was very proud of them and regarded him as a hero. The president then saluted Lieutenant Colonel Birdwell. And Brian slowly returned the salute back. But he said it took about 15 to 20 seconds for him to get his arm up to the salute because of his burns, because of the surgeries, because of the pain that the president held his salute until Lieutenant Colonel Brian Birdwell got his salute up. He dropped his salute only when Brian would finish with this. But Birdwell says, I now live with a renewed purpose after that moment. He said, I'm a walking miracle. He said this, Jesus Christ got me out of the fire. He didn't take me. That means I have a mission and a purpose to complete. And he'll tell me what it is in due time. When I read that story, I thought about that. I sit there and think, so many of us wonder, what's our purpose in life? Why am I here? And for that moment, Lieutenant Colonel Brian Birdwell was sitting there saying, I thought I was supposed to go. I thought Jesus was taking me. But he realized something. You know what? I'm still here, which means I have a purpose in life. There's some reason that Christ has kept me here. But where did he look for that purpose? Maybe it's a higher ranking. Maybe it was, I'm going to get something from the president, like a medal or something. He said, no, no, no. It's beyond that. It's not what I'm going to get out of this. It's maybe something that I'm going to be doing for him. And I think, excuse me, I think it's hard to know what your purpose is if your eyes aren't on Jesus. If you're not looking to Jesus Christ, how will we ever know what he wants us to do. And I think for the disciples that were in the room, as they were sitting around and maybe discussing, who's, who's going to sit next to Jesus? What's my position? What's my, what are we going to do next? Are we going to conquer Jerusalem? Their eyes weren't even on Jesus. Their eyes were maybe on themselves. And it was that moment in time, Jesus walks in and he's looking at him, Or maybe he was sitting there with them and he's just seeing what's going on around him. And he thought, I can't believe what's happening. They do not have their eyes on me. They got their eyes on themselves. Turn with me to John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. So it was time for the supper. The devil had already prompted Judas... 
son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father would give him authority over everything he had come from God and would return to God. Verse 4. So this is the part. So he gets up from the table, seeing what's going on all around him. He took off his robe because nobody else did this. And he wrapped a towel around his waist. He poured water into a basin. He began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. You know what Jesus says? You know what? I've been preaching a lot of sermons. I've been giving a lot of messages. Ever since I rode in on this donkey for the last few days, I've had some pretty awesome messages. He didn't really say that, but he really did have some awesome messages. And then he sits there and he looks at what's going on and he's like, but you still didn't get it. Do you not understand what your purpose is? Do you not understand why I came? No more sermons. I need to show you. So he got up from the table and he went to the basin and he started to wash the feet of the disciples. What do you think about that? What would you say, and I'm not even close to this, okay? Not even close to the stature and who Jesus is. But what would you say if I came with the water basin this morning? Well, you're all just sitting there. No music playing. No video. No phones. You just have to watch what's going to go down. And I would come around and start washing your feet. And I'd come over here and I'd take off your shoes and socks. I'd start to wash your feet. How? Yeah, he gave that look like. You should have seen his eyes. He's like, okay. It was like the most uncomfortable feeling, right? I'm sorry to freak you out like that. But that's probably what the disciples felt like. They're, even Peter said, no, Jesus, you can't wash my feet. Even he didn't want that. Why? He's like, Lord, you can't be the servant in this situation because you're the Savior, not the servant. That's, that's just not going to go down, right? And the crazy thing is, as Jesus is washing the feet of all these disciples, the feet that have walked out in the streets of Jerusalem, these open sandals, stepping in things we don't want to step in. And we've talked about this before, right? So he's washing those feet. He's washing the feet of who? Judas. The one who just betrayed him. Well, he hasn't announced it yet, but Jesus knows. He's already made the deal. And Jesus knows. And he has the feet of Judas in his hands. The hands that created this earth. The hands that created life. Those hands hold the feet of Judas that's betraying him. What would you do if you were Jesus? Would you pinch those feet? Would you put a little electric zap into them? Put them in the water? We might, right? Actually, here's what we would do. We wouldn't even wash his feet. Because when somebody's hurt us or betrayed us, we don't even want to be in the room with them. So we probably wouldn't even go to those feet. But Jesus did. Jesus did. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so. He goes on to say, and let's look what he says in verse 13. Because you understand what I was doing? I'm sorry, because that's what I am. Verse 14, and since I, the Lord, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash each other's feet. I've given you example to follow. Do as I've done to you. I tell you the truth, slaves are no greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends them. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. It was an amazing lesson. The foot washing scene is so foreign and strange to us, not just because it's a cultural thing, but because of what it represents. 
Only a person of low status would be a foot washer, a shoe shiner, right? A servant. But Jesus shows us that the purpose of life is not to be the most wealthiest, most powerful person at all. The purpose of life is to what? Love others, to put their needs first, to be a foot washer, to serve. Jesus came to serve and not be served. Back in Matthew chapter 20. Let me read this to you. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. It says this. And this is sort of replying back to even what he said in John. But among you will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave, right? Become your slave. Look at verse 28. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, my purpose, why did I come here? To serve, to save you. And that's what we've been called to do. And it's so hard because what do we want? We want to be happy. We think we'll be happy if we win ball games. We'll be happy if we win competition. We'll be happy if I get the starting position. We'll be happy if I'm first chair. We'll be happy if I get the solo part. We're going to be happy if I get recognized. I'm going to be happy if I have the most awesome car. I'll be happy if I got money in my pocket. I'll be happy if I get that steak done the way I liked it my steak, right? Let me ask you something. Does that make you truly happy? The answer to that is yes, momentarily. Then after that, no. Momentarily, you will be happy. That's what pleasure is. But after that, it's not sustaining. The more and more we focus on ourselves, the more and more we become depressed. And why is that? Because we're striving for something that's going to never be quenched. A thirst that can never be quenched. Unless we find a purpose in God. And after they've washed their feet, they, they partake over in this Passover meal. The wine, the bread was taken, remind them of the sacrifice that night, and things sort of went on from there and became a little more solemn. His body is sacrificed. They're trying to figure this one out, but they're like, wait, his body is sacrificed, the blood was shed. And they're sort of like, oh, oh, the Passover, the blood of the lamb that was shed. And maybe they're starting to put it together, right? The disciples understand that? I don't know. But he does this. This is what they do get. He washes their feet. They may not have understood the cup and the bread, but they understood the washing of the feet. He served them. And and here's the thing. In spite of his own problems, he knew what was next. He knew he was going to be betrayed. He knew he was going to be denied. He knew he was going to be beaten. He knew he was going to be crucified. He knew what was coming, but what does he still do? He served. In spite of his own problems, he serves others. Let me ask you this. In spite of our own problems, do we serve others? Well, I don't have time to help because i got so much going on in my life right now. My own problems have overwhelmed me so much that I can't help anybody else. And that's a, you know, that happens. That happens, right? But Jesus serves the very people who would hurt him. I want you to think about this. How do we, as a spouse, as a child, as a parent, as a family, as a co-worker, how do we serve others? How do you serve a father who belittled you growing up? How do you serve somebody who abandoned you? How do you serve somebody who is so hard to get along with? How do you serve a neighbor that gossips? How do you serve a family member that just just won't let it go? How do you serve them? Jesus said this, 
Do as I've done for you. Do as I've done for you. Think about this next time you go out to eat. If you've got a waitress, somebody who's serving you, here's something about a server. You don't get to choose who sits at your table. If you're the waiter or waitress, I don't get to choose who's going to sit at the table that I get to serve. I've got to serve whoever that is. I can't control their mess either. I can't. It's whatever's at the table I'm going to serve. Right? You never know how you're going to be treated by those people either, right? You don't know if they're going to be rude to you or really nice to you. You don't know. But what's my job? To serve them. Oh, by the way, your opinion doesn't matter. They may order something. They may say, this is what I want. And you might say, oh, I would never order that. As a matter of fact, I tried that in the back and it's, right? Your opinion doesn't matter. It's their opinion, right? You're there to serve in spite of their opinion. And here's the thing. You're at the mercy of the person at the table. You're at the mercy of that person at that table. You don't tell them what to do. You're there to serve. Next time you go to a restaurant, think about that, who's serving you. That's what God's calling us to do. He's calling us to serve. How far is he willing to go? I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. As they're coming forward, I want to just share a closing passage with you. We've been in the book of Joshua. And in the book of Joshua, as he sort of wraps everything up, stay with me on this one, he says this. And sort of God is now being the voice piece speaking through Joshua. Finally, I brought you into the land of the Amorites on the east side of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I destroyed them before you. I gave you victory over them, and you took possession of the land. Then Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, started a war against Israel. He summoned Balaam and son of Beor to curse you, but I would not listen to them. Instead, I made Balaam bless you, and I rescued you. And when you crossed the Jordan River and came to Jericho, the men of Jericho fought against you, as did the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites. I gave you victory over all of them. I sent terror ahead of you to drive out the two kings of the Amorites. It wasn't your swords or your bows that brought you victory. I gave you land that you'd not worked on. I gave you towns you did not build, the towns you're living in now. I gave you vineyards and olive gardens for food, though you didn't plant them. God's basically saying, I've given you, I've been an inheritance, it's all yours. As Jesus Christ said, I've given you new life in me, right? So fear the Lord, serve him wholeheartedly, put away forever the idols your ancestors worship. And when they live beyond the Euphrates River in Egypt, serve the Lord alone. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you serve. Church, choose today whom you will serve. Would you prefer the gods of your ancestors? who serve beyond the Euphrates, or will be the gods of the Amorites in the land you live now. But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. Can you declare that, church? Can you declare that today? As for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. What is my purpose in life? My purpose in life is to serve God. My purpose in life is to be the foot washer. My purpose in life is that even when somebody's going to betray me and hurt me, I'm to serve. And the gods that I could worship would be the god of money, the god of sport, the God of prestige and the God of position. There's a lot of gods we can worship. But as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. The people replied, we would never abandon the Lord. Never. We're not going to abandon the Lord and serve other gods. For the Lord 
Our God is the one who rescued us and our ancestors from slavery in the land of Egypt. He performed mighty miracles before our eyes and we traveled through the wilderness among our enemies. He preserved us. It's the Lord who drove out the Amorites. Then Joshua warned the people, then serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. Abandon all those other idols. Serve the Lord. From the Old Testament all the way forward to Jesus, the purpose has been made clear to serve the Lord. Will you? Will we take the position with the purpose of heart to serve others? Let's be servants to the King of Kings. He's riding in. Our King of Kings is coming back someday. And when he comes back, I hope we're in that position to wash his feet, to bow at his feet, to serve, to abandon all else and to serve him alone. Would you please stand? Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for being an incredible God. I thank you, Lord, for loving us so much to send your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you, God, that you remind us we have purpose in life. The purpose is to serve, to serve you. And as we serve others, we serve you. Oh, that's a pretty humbling thing. But God, there's purpose in doing that. Thank you, God, for showing us how. God, we want to stand down and declare that we want to abandon all other gods. We want to abandon all their false pursuits. We want to serve you, Lord. We want to make you our God, our King. We proclaim that. In the name we pray, amen.